Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Kenneth Stern is director of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate at Bard College in Annandale-on-Hudson, New York. He is the former executive director of the Justice and Karen Rosenberg Foundation and former director of the Division on Anti-Semitism and Extremism of the American Jewish Committee. At 3 p.m. on April 14th, Stern will talk on anti-Semitism today, censorship, conspiracy, and the dangers of hate in a webinar. We'll examine this particular type of hate and its contemporary manifestations with Kenneth Stern after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. An MTSU professor has been named to the U.S. Homeland Security Advisory Council. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas swore in Linda Williams, a professor in the Department of Criminal Justice Administration, to the panel along with 32 other new members on March 23rd. Williams has taught at MTSU since 2017. She is also immediate past president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. And MTSU will become the first campus in the country to host the Untold Project's Campus Diaries exhibit from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Monday, April 11th in the Student Union Building Atrium. In a Dear Diary format, students anonymously express their stories of mental health challenges, adjustments to campus life, and hopes for the future. The resulting exhibit includes four seven-foot-tall towers adorned with actual anonymous essay pages from the web portal, along with photography by Untold co-founder Lorna Dancy. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Mr. Stern, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you, and I really appreciate the invitation. As I'm sure you know, the uh, the U.S. Senate recently confirmed President Biden's nominee, Deborah Lipstadt, to be a special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. What do you think about this development and the new envoy? Sure. Well, Deborah is actually an old friend, and I was part of her defense team in the David Irving Holocaust denial trial in 2000 in the UK. It's not a new position. The position happened under the Bush administration. So it's not a new position. What is new is that it's been elevated to the level of an ambassadorship. So that's why it took some doing to go through the uh, Senate committees to get her confirmed. But she'll be spectacular. She has a long background and issues of anti-Semitism. Uh, she's served on committees at the Holocaust Museum. She's taught for many years and she's written many books. You know, one of them, uh, the film Denial was based on her book, which was based on the trial and she'll be phenomenal. So I'm very excited about that. The, the definition of anti-Semitism, because th- that is the, the, what we're talking about here, does the definition extend beyond Jews alone? That's, you know, that's part of what I'm going to be talking about on the 14th. There are debates about how to define anti-Semitism, and there are a variety of different definitions that are floating about and somewhat contentious because of how they treat issues relating to Israel. For me, and one of the things I'm going to try to delve into details more about it in the, uh, the formal talk, is that anti-Semitism, when we think about it, 
we should have a, a little bit of a larger lens. It's not only what people say about Jews. It, it, you know, the, the old saying about you know the canary in the coal mine, what people say about Jews impacts society, and we've certainly seen that in history. But one of the things I'll be exploring is the, the opposite of that, the things that happen in society. In general, how people vilify others, the, the strength of our democratic institutions, all those things matter when we think about how anti-Semitism plays out and what actually works to combat it. Since you referred to Israel, let me ask you, what is your view of folks who don't make a distinction between opposition to the Israeli government's policies or political positions and anti-Semitism? There's a debate, basically, about whether um, anti-Zionism, which is, you know, Zionism is a belief that uh, Jews have a right to self-determination, usually expressed in the sense of having a, a nation state, whether that's something that's anti-Semitic or not. And there are some folks for whom their view of the world is that that is, uh, that it's denying to Jews you know, a particular right that others have. You know, on the flip side of it are people who say, let's say Palestinians, who may have grown up with a desire to have self-determination, self-expression. And for them, the creation of the state of Israel uh, is a problem. And so if their animus is towards the fact that it's a Jewish enterprise, that could impact anti-Semitism. If it's the animus is because they believe that they've been displaced and disenfranchised in many ways by this other group that's not them, that may be something else. There's a, a great essay by a Harvard historian named Derek Penzlar. It's a what-if essay. What if instead of Jews coming back to their historic homeland, there was a group called the Templars, who were a Protestant group that had connections to the land. So if they had come back and reconstituted a state, would the reaction be the same as, you know, to the Jewish state? Would it be more like the reaction to Rhodesia, for those of us who remember that? So it's, it's a complicated thing. Do you think there's a tendency among some folks to think that anti-Semitism was conquered when the Allies won World War II and, and put an end to the Third Reich's atrocities? I mean, I've, I've heard people say, oh, well, that'll never happen again, when in fact genocides uh, of various cultural groups are taking place all over the world for various reasons. That, that's right. I mean, the, the capacity, and that's one of the things I will talk in much more detail about on the 14th, I've run a hate study center. And one of the premises of hate studies is that we've always had hate as a problem. Well, preceded the Holocaust, it continues. I mean, you know, we see contemporary examples today, right, in many parts of the world. The idea that somehow when the Nazis were defeated, anti-Semitism disappeared, you know, that's a, a fallacy. I mean, one of the, I, I work on a committee uh, as a volunteer at the Holocaust Museum. I'm a great fan of the museum. But years ago, shortly after it opened, a few years after, I, I went through some of the exhibits and commented to the director that I was a little worried that people could walk into that building without, uh, you know, much background, learn a lot, but come to the conclusion that, you know, anti-Semitism started in a beer hall in Germany and I did it in a bunker in Berlin. Uh, when that's not the case. And so what I think the Holocaust Museum has done very well is to, to not try to become a, a, you know, another Jewish defense agency, not try to become a place that looks at all issues of anti-Semitism like the ADL would, 
But things that relate to issues of the Holocaust to see as contemporary manifestations. And they've been very good about that. So the idea that anti-Semitism just sort of stopped, you know, is sort of silly. I mean, the other thing is that I remember about 20 years ago, there was a debate inside the Jewish community that the major issue was intermarriage. Well, think about that. Jews were being loved to death. So you know, that, that, was the, that was the big concern. And so and that was around 2000. Remember, before the collapse of the peace process, it was in, when Lieberman was the vice presidential candidate, an Orthodox Jew, and there was very little to do about that. So that was the real worry inside the Jewish community. And people were saying, anti-Semitism has disappeared. Then you flip forward a couple of years, and the second intifada starts, Jews are being beat up um, in the streets of Europe and other places in reaction to some of the things that are happening in Israel. And people were saying, this is the 1930s all over again. It's not. I mean, it didn't disappear in 2000 and it wasn't the 1930s. A couple of years later, anti-Semitism has been around historically. It, it's a matter of religion. It's a matter of theology. It's a matter of identity. It's a matter of ideology. And it's an easy frame for people to try to put the world simple, simple terms of why they believe they're somehow losing things because there's an unseen hand and that's historically been seen as the Jews. We'll take a break right here. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte Gross, WISE Advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Kenneth Stern, director of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate at Bard College. He'll be speaking in a webinar on April the 14th about anti-Semitism today, sponsored by several MTSU entities. Ken, why do Holocaust deniers persist in the United States all these years after the Nazi systematic attempt to exterminate Jews, despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary? Is that not why General Eisenhower insisted that when the troops went into the camps that they take movie cameras so that they would document it because he figured the rest of the world just wouldn't believe it? Holocaust denial really isn't about history. And as much Eisenhower was great, and there were other people who try to document what, you know what happened there for just because it was such an atrocity, and they wanted people to know. But it's really not a matter of having an incorrect view of history. It's a matter of a manifestation of hatred of Jews. Because if you posit that the Holocaust didn't happen and Jews just made it up, then you have to believe that there's some either global conspiracy of historians and others to you know, cover up what actually is. Protocol and, of the elders of Zion. Of Zion, very much. Yeah. Or, you know, you know look, look back at poison, Jews poisoning wells. That was not a debate about water quality. That was a debate <laughs> about Jews, right? So yeah. this, this is, 
the Holocaust denial, I mean, it's a fascinating thing. It came out of the, uh, well, first, I mean, the Nazis were trying to cover up their atrocities. Then it became a sort of fashionable enterprise in the far right that connected far right groups globally and also some others. I mean, the Nation of Islam, Farrakhan's group had Holocaust deniers speak to it. There are other groups that also dabble in Holocaust denial for a variety of reasons, but its basic thrust was to say that we weren't winning, convincing people that fascism was a good idea by you know, looking at the Holocaust. It's the moral albatross around the whole idea of where Hitler was and Mussolini and others. You know, we see today populist and, and nativist ideas. And so they try to create this alternative yeah, and what, what's really fascinating about it, and this is, I will we'll delve into a little bit more detail. They try to paint a picture that sounds reasonable uh, to make people think, gee, maybe this didn't happen. Maybe it's a suppressed truth. So to give one example, they may say that there's a picture of a Nazi guard smoking a cigarette outside of an alleged gas chamber. And they will show the specs from uh, the manufacturer of the Zyklon B that shows that it was an explosive um, when it turned into a gaseous form. It was explosive at a different level than, than it was in the air. There are a whole bunch of other ones, you know, that talk about the Anne Frank diary. Take one little historical fact out of, or scientific fact out of context, and it's easy to get people to say, gee, what's true and what isn't? It persisted, you know, it, Less so, I think, in some ways than it did 20, 25 years ago when you had one of the heirs of Thomas Edison was funding one of the groups that was promoting this and putting out a scholarly magazine and you know bringing people together, uh, including David Irving, who talked about before with Deborah Lipstack context to, to meetings to try to promote this. You know, it's like anti-Semitism morphs over time in the sense of not what it does, but the different tropes that can be used to express it. And this is one of the more recent ones. Uh, on March 29th, the Tennessee House passed legislation that bans obscene materials or materials harmful to minors, quote unquote, quoting from the bill, to be available to students in school libraries controlled by a local education agency or public school, and it contains a provision to withhold funding and exact criminal punishment for violations. It was introduced after the McMinn County School Board took the graphic novel Mouse out of its curriculum. It uh, got a great deal of national media attention. Do you see this as an anomaly or as part of a wider trend? I worry when legislative bodies try to prescribe what can be read, what can be taught. To me, that that's just the antithesis of what education is about. Mouse is intended for a younger audience uh, mainly, but we see uh, attempts to try to prescribe teaching about race, teaching about gender. I don't think that's a role of government at all. What you want in, a, in a school is you want students to not be harassed. You don't want them to be discriminated against. You don't want to shield them from ideas. You want them to be exposed to different things in, a, in an education appropriate way to basically say certain books shall not be available to me is wrong. The question is parents and others can decide what books their children should read, but it shouldn't be the legislature deciding that. I see some issues of that relating to anti-Semitism. There are a bunch of bills that would take one of the definitions of anti-Semitism and use it in certain ways in educational um, settings. And I see that as a as a problem too. You, you really want to encourage the largest 
view of, of kids to be educated. And if you look back at our history, the times where we've allowed government to prescribe what could be taught have not been wonderful times. I mean, you look back at the McCarthy era, or you look at what's happening in Hong Kong, or you look what's happening in you know, Russia. Pe- people on a campus can't even say there's a war going on. I think that rather than come to the conclusion that we ought to protect children from hearing things that may disturb them, is rather to arm them to how do you deal with things that are going to disturb you for the rest of your life? How do you engage these ideas? Um, how do you build up a capacity to, to understand the world a little bit better? The tendency, it's both on the right and the left, to sort of shield children, to put them in, in almost like bubble wrap, does them a disservice. There's a book by uh, Jonathan Hyde and Greg Lukianoff. Jonathan is a uh, professor at the NYU uh, Business School. He's a, a social psychologist, and Greg is the head of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. They make the point that there's a push to get kids to, well, basically to, to say to them, you know, what doesn't kill you, you know, can, can really harm you as opposed to what doesn't kill you makes you strong. The idea that you get strength from being exposed to different things ought to be the cornerstone of what education is about. Your point about graphic images goes directly to what was stated by advocates of this ban in McMinn County on mouse. The nature of the some of the images in the book disturbed them, but graphic images, especially photographs and videos, are part of history. How for example, do you describe what Joseph Mengele did without being graphic? How can one show the mass graves of emaciated bodies in the German camps without graphic images? This is reality. That's absolutely right. You know, again, to me, the, the danger is when we say to certain people that you have the power to describe what everybody else is going to see as, as a function of government. That worries me. I mean, I, I see looking at issues of hatred more broadly and looking at issues of society and our health of society, the level of the strength of our democratic institutions to me is, is critically important. And I worry when we go down the road of having government, again, prescribe certain speech. It's going to always be the speech the government doesn't like, not the speech that you and I might not like. The history of that road is, you know, replete with violations of civil liberties. It harms students, it harms faculty, it harms the ability to create critical thinkers. It puts us into more binary groups in society. And I I just think it isn't wise. I understand why people get upset about these things. But when you think about the benefit of exposing uh, students to different ideas versus sheltering them in place and saying that you're not going to see anything that disturbs you is, is, is problematic. We'll take another break right here. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer 
at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of Fire. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Kenneth Stern is our guest. He'll be involved in an MTSU-sponsored webinar on April 14th with the title of Anti-Semitism Today, Censorship, Conspiracy, and the Dangers of Hate. Mr. Stern is director of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate at Bard College. On the one hand, wall-to-wall coverage of the war in Ukraine is knocking a lot of news about anti-Semitic acts out of the headlines. But on the other hand, Vladimir Putin's assertion that he wants to denazify a country that has a Jewish president uh, has brought attention to the absurdity of Russian propaganda. Do you uh, view the debunking of Putin and the pariah status he has acquired as a positive development in the fight against anti-Semitism? I mean, uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine has become a rock star. I, I think it's really too early to tell how this is going to shake out. I think this is one of those moments we're going to look back at as one of the ones that sort of shift history. You know, in my lifetime, I've lived through a few as a kid during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Kennedy assassination and fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union and Tiananmen Square. And uh, I think this is one of those moments, but it may be even more significant. The anti-Semitism aspect of it at this point is really minor compared to the fact of what the Ukrainians are going through on a daily basis and just fears of are the, how are they going to live to tomorrow and are they going to have a country and where are they going to get their family reunited and are they going to be refugees for a long time. Certainly, historically, when there's more uh, of an us versus them view of the world that's propagated, the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories inevitably come into, into play. And I suspect, you know, even despite how ridiculous the idea this is about denazification, not only because Zelensky is Jewish, but just, you know, because they're not Nazis. I mean, there are, there are a couple of far right groups that are part of some of the Ukrainians. But again, you know, other countries have that, too. The long-term impact of this is it's, it's going to be really difficult to imagine at this point. And one of the things when I talk about campus issues, I point to what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Hong Kong, what's going on in Russia, and just to have the, the liberty, the luxury to have strongly different ideas stated on a campus and to have the open space for looking at those things, to me, is something that we should never forget how fortunate we are, because you can't do that today in Ukraine, you can't do that in Russia, you can't do that in Hong Kong, you can't do that in China. We shouldn't forget that we're fortunate that way. Now, many small towns like the one in which I uh, grew up don't have ethnically diverse populations, don't have synagogues. Everything I heard when I was a child about the Jewish faith and the people who practice it came from two sources, prejudiced white people and television. And television, thank goodness, sort of counterbalanced the prejudiced white people because I spent a lot of time watching television, especially the news. So how do folks like you reach people who don't have any daily interaction at school or at work with people who might be targets of anti-Semitism. Because when you get to know people, that takes a lot of the edge off of the prejudiced crap that you've been hearing all your life. You could have anti-Semitism in a place where there are no Jews. 
the protocols which you mentioned before from time to time become great sellers in Japan. It's hardly a Jewish community there at all. You know, anti-Semitism in lots of ways is, is an idea more than just how you think about a person that you may not know. Uh, there's a woman named Kathleen Blee, who's a sociologist, who did a study of women in the Klan. And what was an interesting finding was that they got their racism in a different way than they got their anti-Semitism. What she found, this is you know, sort of a version of a bunch of different stories, but the basic story was uh, for their view of Blacks, they would say, well, you know, I was, was on a bus and there was a Black girl who was playing her radio loud and, you know, I didn't like that. That's how I, you know, whether it's fantasy or not, there was like a specific incident they can come back to and say, this is how I learned about what I think about Black people. With anti-Semitism, it was more of a, you know, view of this is how the world works. Aha, now I know there'd be un seen hand behind, you know, like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtains making things happen. So it was it was an understanding of how the world worked. The Rothschilds, you know, controlling the weather or, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene retreating about Jews with space lasers starting forest fires, or you're talking about, you know, Holocaust denial, creating this myth of the Holocaust for a bunch of you know, nefarious purposes. So that there's a, a, a difference in those things. That being said, in many small communities where there's a very small Jewish community there. The issues are different than for, say, where I am in New York, which is a very, you know, multi-ethnic uh, community with a vibrant Jewish community as well. You know, in some places, and I lived for a while in Oregon, so I saw this, you know, firsthand, people see the world as basically like them. And if the most of the them is, is presumptively white and Christian, then you know, they presu presume that everything has to be in, in that mold too. So it's not anti-Semitism, although it feels like it sometimes. In some small towns, you know, the Jewish kid is uh, told they're going to be kicked off the football team if they don't play on Yom Kippur. But, you know, the same thing would happen, I think, to a Hindu kid or a Muslim kid. And it's just a question of how communities are open to defining themselves and their diversity. It's fine for people to have strong religious and cultural connections, but to understand that that doesn't mean that you're going to discriminate against people that may not share your religion or your ethnicity. The talk is going to be called Anti-Semitism Today, Censorship, Conspiracy, and the Dangers of Hate. It's scheduled to start at 3 p.m. Central Time on April 14th. If our discussion with Ken has been any indication, I think you'll find quite fascinating and quite enlightening. Ken Stern, thank you for being our guest on MTSU on the Record. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been my pleasure. We'll be right back. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERRA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. TERRA wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to TERRA, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle East-centered MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. 
Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. MTSU's Business Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program recently received the Small Business Institute's 2022 Showcase Award for the top program among the participating universities in the professional development organization. Management professor Josh Aaron, the Pam Wright Chair of Entrepreneurship, explains the benefit of being a part of the Institute. The, the benefit is for, for the students who participate in these um, project of the year competitions. The benefit is also in certainly the networking and, and me getting to rub elbows with the other entrepreneurship program directors. And Small Business Institute is one where the people really kind of look for ways to help each other out. You know, inside that organization, I've got six endowed chairs of entrepreneurship that I can bounce any kind of idea off of. It's been a good group for me personally, but it's also something that I can learn and then take that stuff back and immediately apply in my program. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.